Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's sponsor is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker provides you with personalized exercise, nutrition, and supplementation plan to optimize your health. Claim your 20% discount at insidetracker.com slash new scientist. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper and welcome to episode 125. And we'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for listening and for supporting our show. Yes, we really love hearing from you and we love even more that you're enjoying our show. Um, so let's do another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm Penny Sarche and our guests this week are Michael LePage in London, Alice Klein in Australia, Leah Crane in Chicago and James Deneen in New York. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. On the show this week, we'll be hearing more of the whale-inspired music you can hear in the background. We'll be hearing how the optimal zone for human life on Earth is shrinking. And we're talking about the benefits of having poo transplants. Lovely. And also, Lair is going to tell us some cool astrobiology news. And Michael is going to update us on the latest on monkeypox. But we're going to start by talking about CRISPR babies. And by that, I mean the three children born in China a few years ago. And it was the world's first attempt to use gene editing on human embryos that would then go on to form babies. Uh, Now, Penny, it was super controversial at the time. What's happened since? Yeah, if you cast your mind back to before the pandemic, which is obviously how I view history (laughs) now, (laughs) pre and post, um, this experiment um, just absolutely shook the worlds of science and biomedicine and ethics. So if you remember, um, it was an announcement that was made by scientist He Jiankui in 2018. It was huge news. He'd revealed he'd used CRISPR technology on embryos in an effort to prevent children from contracting HIV from their fathers. And he was then subsequently imprisoned in China in 2019, and he was released from prison earlier this year. Yeah, and basically imprisoned because he was literally experimenting on humans. Yes. So, I mean, you could easily do a whole podcast episode on the ethical problems of of this alone. Some of the big issues here um, were, I I guess, the most obvious one is the safety problems of using CRISPR gene editing in embryos. Plus, there were loads of other questions like, was the approach that he used really necessary or even effective for preventing these children from contracting HIV? And concerns over whether the participants in the study really had all the information they needed and the ability to give informed consent or to drop out or opt out at any point. There were, it was just so many problems with the experiment. And what's weird is, is sometimes I forget that there are actual children born as a result of this. So what, what's happened to them? Yeah, so they're now toddlers. Uh, they're known pseudonymously as Amy, Lulu and Nana. 
And scientists in China have uh, now proposed that a healthcare institute should be established specifically to look after them. One of the bioethicists behind the proposal told Nicholas Gutierrez-C, who wrote a fascinating piece for us this week, that he believes the best way to provide these three children with special protection is to establish a centre to perform surveillance, examinations and treat and care for them if they fall ill. God, so the, basically these poor kids are going to be studied and poked and examined their whole lives. What well, is the concern that the gene editing may be, have caused them to be born with some genetic abnormalities? Yes, yeah, and that's a, a legitimate concern um, because although CRISPR gene editing is far more precise than a lot of the older genetic modification techniques that we've had, it's still not perfect. So bits of DNA code can be added or removed at the site where you're making changes. And there can be wider effects too that affect other genes that you're not even targeting and possibly deleting chunks of chromosome. So there is the potential here for quite a wide range of possible effects on these children's health. Um, but one of the clear concerns here is that they could develop cancer early on in their life it's it's horrendous Mm. Um, so I guess in that way it makes sense to really keep a close eye on them medically and try and protect their privacy at the same time yeah, but something that I find worrying here is is there's also this suggestion that not only should these children have close medical monitoring for their own sakes, but that they should also be monitored to deepen our understanding of what happens when we edit human genomes in this way. Yeah, yeah making them sound like lab rats. It's, mm. it's not very pleasant. So the argument here is it's twofold. Um, so one, it could prepare researchers for any further experiments if, if you know, people radically went out and did this again to help uh, the people who came out of those experiments, but also that it could help us improve our understanding of how best to use gene editing technology in this way so that we could, in theory, safely use it in the future. Yeah, I mean, and people are out there saying they're going to do it. There's that Russian biologist, Denis Rebrikov. Um, he's working on it. He's working on embryos and he's, he's waiting for approval. He wants to go ahead and do it. So it is going to, seems like it's going to happen. Well, I, I personally, I think we kind of maybe um, informed by science fiction and just this kind of general idea that, you know, the march of scientific progress. I'm not sure it's actually a given that we will ever do that. I think if we put it to society to decide on the ethics of actually genetically engineering a life before it's born, uh, you know, this isn't the same as really clever medical treatments where you can take an organ out or uh, or a donor organ, say, or take someone's blood cells and edit them so that you can fight your own cancer or get an organ that you don't need to take drugs for. You know, there's lots of really interesting and exciting uses of gene editing. But those just are those are treatments for a condition that a person have already has. And the idea that you would actually edit the entire blueprint in every cell of a person before mm. they're alive, yeah. I'm, I really don't know that that's a given that we're going to start doing that. No. I, I, I think it is. I think we'll definitely do it in the future. But I also think it's definitely not safe to try it yet. And, and no one should be trying it for the moment. Yeah. But I, I've no doubt that maybe we're talking decades, maybe a century, but I think it will become routine. I mean, I, I tend to agree, but at, at the moment, it's not a good look, is it, that, you know, we're monitoring these children, these three children, to get knowledge from them, and rather than just doing it for the sake of their health. 
Yeah, and that's a key criticism of the proposal to set up this health institute. You know, these children deserve as normal a life as possible. And, you know, in my mind, they had no choice in this. So why would they have any duty at all to submit to research for the sake of improving mankind's understanding of gene editing? And and some argue that actually the kinds of tests that these children should have to look out for health issues like tumours and so on, those tests could be delivered in normal community health settings without the stigma of having to report to a dedicated institute. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what the Chinese government decides about the institute. And as you say, it's a super thorny area. And uh, look, we'll put a link in the show notes to the big story in this week's magazine. Now, as we speak, the United Nations Ocean Conference is taking place in Portugal, and it's all about galvanising action to protect and save oceans. And at the event, there's a performance of a new composition that fuses ocean sound and human music. uh, And that's what you can hear in the background. Let's have a bit of a listen. And then, James, you're going to tell us what's going on. was a piece called Unity by a composer named Joshua Sam Miller um, from a larger project of his called Sounds of the Ocean. He's performing that project Friday at the Lisbon Planetarium. And those were humpback whales you heard along with the regular instruments. And there are lots of other animals on the album, all of which were recorded at a marine station off the coast of Monterey, California. There are even blue whales, though you need good speakers to hear them. (laughs) Their calls are so deep. Um, And I spoke with Miller a few days ago, and he said that he sees the whales and other animals in his music as the lead singers, and he's trying to support what the animals are saying with his music. (laughs) And what he's really hoping is that that by performing this music at the UN Ocean Conference, he can help people connect with marine life on a more emotional level and hopefully inspire more ambitious action towards marine conservation. It's pretty cool. Well, look, what I really wanted to ask you about this week is a climate story. And this is a study suggesting that the area we live in is dramatically shrinking. So what what's the study about? Yeah, this is a preliminary study that hasn't yet been peer reviewed, but it looks at how different warming scenarios will change the temperature in places where most people have historically lived. The researchers think of these places as a kind of optimal climate for humans And they found with 2.7 degrees of warming by the end of the century, which is what we're on course for, as much as 40% of people could be living outside that optimal climate zone. And so that means, um, what, that it's too hot or too humid or there's so much drought, it's impossible to grow food? Is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, of course, people live everywhere. But according to these researchers, through the past 8,000 years or so, people have tended to congregate within certain temperature ranges that are closely associated with where domesticated crops grow best. Human populations appear to be densest in places with an average annual temperature of around 13 degrees Celsius, with another smaller cluster at 27 degrees Celsius. Wow. So where's the, where's the place that has an average of 27 degrees? Is that, is that like South Asia? Exactly. That that peak is mostly due to the hot, humid Indian subcontinent. Right. Um, but this number they reach 
40% outside the habitable zone means 40% of people living in places with an average annual temperature of 29 degrees Celsius or 84 degrees Fahrenheit, assuming a global population of 9.5 billion people by then, that's around 4 billion people outside the zone in their maximum estimate. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about whether we can or can't keep to this goal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. What happens to the optimal habitable zone if we are able to get at least close to that target? Yeah, so that's one hopeful finding from the study. With 1.5 degrees of warming, half as many people would be affected as the 2.7 degree scenario. So instead of 4 billion people, 2 billion people. Yeah, I mean, still in the best case scenario, we're shrinking the the human niche, our ecological niche, like massively. Yeah, and climate change is already shrinking the niche. In yeah. 1980, about 0.3% of people lived outside. By 2015, due to both climate change and demographic change, 12% of people lived outside. And it's not an even distribution. For instance, in this 2.7 degree scenario, the greatest number of people outside the niche live in India, 600 million people, followed by Nigeria with 300 million people and Indonesia with 100 million people. Yeah, it's, it's really frightening when you hear figures like that. One researcher told me the numbers are gobsmacking. Another told me that these are the numbers that we should have been listening to for years rather than economic analyses, which can sometimes make climate impacts seem relatively small. And as you say, it's already happening very much so, you know, and that's what we hear all the time from people in the global south, that they, they don't need pledges, they need action now because they're living with it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's also important to say that people live where they live for all kinds of reasons beyond the climate. And even with climate change, people have lots of agency over how to respond, whether to stay or go, whether things become a conflict or not. And it's also worth saying that not everyone accepts this idea of a human climate niche. But the researchers on this study argue that living outside it generally makes life more difficult and dangerous for everything from growing food to staying healthy to keeping the peace. Yeah, it is very frightening stuff. But we should end this segment um, with our you know, efforts to point out a bit of optimism here but, and, and emphasize that how every bit of warming we avoid uh, is good. Yeah, with 1.5 degrees, the study found six times fewer people in India end up outside the niche and 20 times fewer in Indonesia than the 2.7 degree scenario. And every sliver of warming avoided between 1.5 and 2.7 or beyond makes a difference. Let's take a break to tell you about the next online event from New Scientist. It's all about the evolution of childhood and your expert guide is anthropologist Brenna Hassett. You can join the event online on Thursday, the 7th of July. Yeah, it's all about why humans have a uniquely long childhood compared to other primates. Uh, to find out more, go to newscientist.com slash childhood. The other thing to tell you about is a cruise we're running to the Scottish Hebrides on the science of whiskey. Yeah, yeah um, the notes of this say it's a whiskey lover's dream cruise, taking you deep into the science of how whiskey is made. Uh, you will, of course, be sampling whiskey, but in a science-led way. <laughs> Well, that's so the important okay. thing. Yeah, yeah, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> Go to newscientist.com slash whiskey. Uh, and that's whiskey without an E, of course. Newscientist.com slash whiskey. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, we're back, and I wanted to start this next segment by marking the sad news this week of the death of Deborah James who was a head teacher and a podcaster who had bowel cancer. And she's well known as Bowel Babe. Uh, she became famous for raising awareness of bowel cancer and for destigmatizing talking about poo. And in that spirit, we're going to be talking a lot about poo. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, this is a story about fecal transplants. And it's also about the microbiome because a clinical trial has found that fecal transplants can cure the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS by introducing a healthier mix of gut microbes. Rowan spoke to our Australian reporter Alice Klein to find out more. Hi, Alice. Now, we've been hearing a lot about gut microbes and gut health in recent years. And we hear things like there are trillions of microbial cells in our guts and claims about them influencing everything from different aspects of our mental health to Parkinson's and even ageing. So why has it become such a big focus? Well, I think it's because we can now actually peer into people's guts and find out exactly what microbes are living in there thanks to advances in genetic sequencing. And this has been really eye-opening because it turns out that some people have an imbalance of what we call good gut microbes and bad gut microbes. And this seems to significantly increase the risk of developing a whole range of conditions, everything from irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, and then even strange things like depression and schizophrenia. And that's opened up this tantalising possibility that we might be able to treat some of these conditions by recolonising people's guts with a healthier mix of microbes. And that's where the faecal transplants come in. Yeah, so you can think of faecal transplants basically being a crude way of introducing a healthy mix of microbes into people's guts. So the idea is that you ask someone who's got excellent gut health to donate some of their poo, which is teeming with all their good gut microbes. Then you put that poo inside the guts of someone with poorer health. The hope is that the healthy gut microbes from the poo transplant then take over the recipient's gut flora. And do they have to process the poo first or they just chuck it in? It's pretty basic. Um, the donor's poo just gets stored in a freezer until it's needed. Then it's thawed and mixed with salty water and filtered. And then it's syringed via this special instrument into the recipient's intestines. Okay, so that makes it a little bit more medical than I was picturing. Um, <laughs> well, let's, not try, let's try not to picture that. Um, look, so in this trial this clinical trial that tested faecal transplants in people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, who donated? Where did they get the poo from? Well, this was really interesting because the same person actually donated all the poo for the study. That was enough to treat 110 people with irritable bowel Jesus. syndrome. So I, I guess he must have been an enthusiastic excreter. 
Um, <laughs> a super but, shitter. <laughs> but the reason he was chosen to be this poo super donor was because he was a healthy, athletic, 36-year-old with a flawless diet, and he also had some other traits that have been associated with healthy gut microbes, like he was vaginally delivered at birth and breastfed. I remember doing a story once on this and someone with IBS was saying how they were, they were desperate to get their hands on the feces of, of a hunter-gatherer. I think it was someone from the Hadza, Hadza tribe in mm-hmm. Tanzania. Because yep. um, they imagine those like tribal people would have like super healthy gut bacteria. So did the people with IBS get better after they had this super donor's poo transferred to them? Yeah, well, actually about two-thirds of them had fewer gut symptoms and fatigue and better quality of life when they were followed up three years later. And many said that their symptoms had gone away completely, which is amazing. Wow. They also had a placebo group of 38 IBS patients who had their own poo transferred to their intestines as a comparison instead of Mm. the donor's poo and they didn't have the same improvements. So that suggests that the fecal transplants really do work. Yeah, and and so this one-off transplant seems to be able to last for years. And do you have to improve your diet? Presumably they ask you to improve your diet because we've reported on studies showing things like, you know, if you eat 30 different types of plants a week, you have a much more diverse microbiome and that's much better for you. Yeah, they were advised to have a healthy diet. But interestingly, Mm. before they had the transplants, they actually had to try a a healthy diet for a while and show that that didn't work. So diet alone wasn't enough to fix them. They did have to have this fecal transplant. And I guess the idea of having someone else's poo put inside you might might sound off-putting, but lots of people are very keen to try the idea, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, at first it does sound a little bit unsavoury, but... Many people with IBS have been suffering for years, some for decades, with constipation, diarrhea, tiredness, bloating, and other mm. unpleasant symptoms. So, yeah. I mean, if it works and it's safe, then it might be worth a try. At the moment, it's not really feasible to give everyone with IBS a fecal transplant because they're pretty costly and they take a long time to organise. But what we're thinking in the future is that we may be able to identify the most important microbes in donor's poo and then put them into pill form so that people can just take a pill instead. Okay, so taking a pill would be a great win for people. But um, what's this new stuff about people who are banking their poo when they're young in case, what, what's that about? Yeah, well, there's kind of this new idea now that, um, you know, when you're young and healthy, you've probably got better poo than than when you're older. And so there's actually a poo bank already open in the US where you can bank your poo when you're young, just in case you have some sort of chronic condition later in life, like IBS. And and then you can get your own poo put back into you, but your old healthy poo. Well, and they keep keep the bacteria alive for you all that time, or they're just... They just, guess, freeze them and they can come back. They can yeah, I think they just, they just store them in the back of their freezer. <laughs> what a story. Um, imagine being in the placebo group where you only got your own poo put back up you. How awful that would be. Now we have some cool astrobiology news with the finding that even planets that have gone rogue and are just roaming around the galaxy without a star might still be able to maintain conditions for life. Leia, my first question is, how many planets do we think have gone rogue? How many are just roaming around on their own out there? Um, actually, a whole lot. 
<laughs> you know, planets get chucked out of their solar systems for all sorts of different reasons, whether it's another star goes by really close or another planet in the system has some sort of gravitational interaction. So there's probably millions and millions of these rogue planets out there. They're just really hard to find because they don't emit any light and they're not all that big compared to other stuff in space, but there's probably a lot of them. So often we think when we're thinking about planets that could be home to life that such planets would need a star because that's where they'll get energy from and we often talk about the Goldilocks zone around a star where it's not too hot and not too cold so you can have liquid water like we do here but you know how does any of that apply to a rogue planet? So there is an idea that you don't necessarily need starlight to heat up your planet. There are other sources of heat all planets have radioactive elements in them, and so you get some radiogenic heat. And if you have a super thick, dense atmosphere, you can get a sort of greenhouse effect where instead of radiating out of the planet and away to space, that atmosphere absorbs some of it and radiates it back at the planet. Right. So the, the atmosphere is literally a blanket keeping the planet warm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just the greenhouse effect. Um but there's this new study that looked at planets with hydrogen and helium atmospheres, which we expect to be pretty common for young planets, and found that this hydrogen greenhouse effect can keep these planets warm and warm enough to host liquid water for billions of years, not just for a little bit, if they're far away from the star, but even if they don't have one. Yeah, wow. So if uh, if it's billions of years, that's easily long enough time for life to evolve and uh, for then for intelligence to arise and civilizations to grow and then they can <laughs> just destroy each other through short-term <laughs> outlooks. I mean, yeah, in theory, you know, we don't know of any higher life forms that breathe no. hydrogen and helium. So probably it's just microbes if there's anything. Yeah. But you, with life, you never know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Life finds a way. Next, um, Michael, you've been following the monkeypox outbreak. So what's the latest there? So it, it's spreading faster with most cases in Europe, but more and more reports coming in from the rest of the world. And after just a couple of months, we're already up to more than 4,000 confirmed cases, mostly among men who have sex with men. So that means that this is now the biggest monkeypox outbreak ever, at least that we know of. And how serious are these cases? Most of the cases appear to be mild, but there are some reports of people having such severe pain that they actually have to be hospitalised to have uh, treatment for this pain. The good news is that so far, no deaths have been reported outside Africa. And so um, there are a few different types of monkeypox, and um, the death rate has been reported to be as high as 3% for this particular kind before. So what's going on there with, with such large case numbers? Um, why aren't people dying? Well, that, that death rate, of course, comes from reports in African countries where a lot of the people who died would have been young children or people with HIV that wasn't being treated properly. That is, these were people who were highly vulnerable to monkeypox. So by contrast, the people who are getting monkeypox in Europe and the US, they're getting treatments, they're getting sort of vaccines, which can help even if given after the initial exposure. And so I think that difference in, in, in sort of treatment and, and who's getting infected explains why there have been no deaths so far. But of course, if the virus was to get into vulnerable people or in sort of poorer countries, say in Asia with 
less access to healthcare, that we could start to see deaths from this this sort of larger outbreak around the world. And 4,000 is really big. I mean, how big could it get? <laughs> well, that's, that is, of course, the big question, as it were, and, and no one knows the answer yet. Uh, what, what's clear, the initial expectation is that we'll get this under control really quickly because all the previous monkeypox outbreaks outside of Africa have been really small, usually just a household or something. And so that assumption is is clearly totally wrong. This outbreak is not being brought under control by the usual track and trace measures. So the UK has acknowledged this and it's sort of changed tack and started offering vaccination just to anyone who's at high risk. That is uh, mainly men who have sex with men and have multiple partners. And do we think that this kind of vaccination programme will be able to bring the outbreak under control? On paper, it should definitely work. So we were able to eliminate smallpox because the vaccine against it was so effective, providing very high and long-lasting protection. And so the hope is definitely that the, the same will be true of monkeypox. But there is an issue of whether we've got enough vaccines, at least in the short term. Um, and the way you phrase that makes me think there aren't enough vaccines. Yeah, you'd think because monkeypox has been around for decades, we'd have lots of vaccine available already. But no, because monkeypox has been sort of a disease affecting poor people in faraway countries, basically, there's not been that much effort put in developing vaccines or, or manufacturing them. The ones that we have in uh, sort of Western countries were actually developed for smallpox in case it reemerged rather than monkeypox. But one of these smallpox vaccines called Invernex is also approved for preventing monkeypox in some countries. But uh, there are only enough doses uh, for around a million people uh, available right now. And the company that makes this vaccine told me there's not going to be any more coming until at least next year because they've closed their production facility to to expand it. So if we've got enough doses for around a million people this year and we've only had 4,000 cases so far, is that enough? Well, it's going to be plenty of countries get on top of this quickly before it it sort of spreads more widely. Uh, The trouble is that if case numbers keep growing exponentially, then we could run out of vaccine stocks really quickly. And of course, a lot of countries don't even have any of these vaccines to start with. And the other thing that I I find worrying is that there could be a lot of cases going undetected. So for instance, in the whole of Asia, only South Korea has confirmed a case. And if you think about all the travel connections, say between the UK, which has the most cases, and, and India, It's really surprising that India isn't reporting cases, for instance. So I think there's this worry that we're actually missing cases and this is already even bigger than we think it is. And if we are missing cases, then it's going to be much harder to get this under control. Thanks, Michael. Uh, And that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Michael LePage, Alice Klein, Leah Crane and James Deneen. And thanks to you for listening. Do remember to rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now. Take care and see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.